Welcome to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. I'm Tom Keen, along with Jonathan Farrell and Lisa Abramowitz. Daily, we bring you insight from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations. Find Bloomberg Surveillance on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on the Bloomberg Terminal. We are honored that the Chief Executive Officer of AXA, Thomas Burbel, joins us now in support with Ian Bremmer and Eurasia Group of actually quantifying risk. Thomas, I've got to say congratulations on the acuity of your study. You go out and speak to thousands of people. Explain why this study is different from last year or the others of the thousands you talked to. Thanks, Tom. Yeah, we're doing this study now for the eighth year, the AXA Future Risk Report. And what's important for us is to understand how risks are perceived, but also how uh, we can map them out. And what you can see is that uh, obviously the hierarchy of risks uh, is changing over the time. While last year, obviously, pandemic was the number one risk, we are now seeing that climate is back uh, at the top. So it's for us very important to understand what are the key risks and also how can they be solved. Walk me through the key risks right now then, Thomas. Frame the climate debate for us. From a company perspective, are people worried about climate change changing their business or are they worried about stakeholders turning them back on their business because they're not worried enough about climate change? I would say all of the above. The issue is today that uh, we have uh, very, very uh, many uh, evidences around us uh, that climate change does um, matter to us, does change our life. I think uh, when you look at COVID-19, this could also well be connected uh, to climate change. And the issue is really what can we do about it? How can we change it? We see that in the political arena, there is a strong uh, desire now uh, on the legislative front to really um, uh, push the transition. And so companies, investors and insurance us uh, will have to align and uh, we've been uh, very early on in this game making sure that on the investment side but also on the underwriting side we are going in the direction of helping society helping the companies um, to really make this climate change happen because it is the top risk not only uh, in the general public but certainly also for the young people that for the first time we actually uh, put a specific focus on in that eighth edition. Can you put some numbers on that? For the underwriting business specifically, Thomas, how have you changed how you do business? So essentially, um, we are looking at, firstly, how can we make sure that we are avoiding uh, uh, companies' risks that are clearly polluters? So if you take uh, the coal industry, uh, it was in 2015 that AXA decided to exit coal on the investment side, and we've also followed the same logic on the underwriting side, making sure that we are redeploying that uh, investment and capacity uh, in, green, uh, in the green area. However, this is not enough. If you look, the meat uh, of the transition and the key area is really how to help industrial companies to move uh, from a mix that is not sustainable to something that is more sustainable. And this transition area, helping uh, to invest in companies that have a very clear and credible transition plan and also doing the same on the underwriting side is the journey we're going now. Thomas, is your heft in dealing with this issue as a company more on the insurance side or more on the underwriting side, more on the investing side? It is on both sides, but I do believe, Lisa, that on the insurance side, it is even more powerful. On the investment side, we are one of many investors. And if you want to uh, find uh, funds for a coal factory today, you will. 
However, on the insurance side, uh, if you don't have an insurance, you will not find any investment. And we have uh, launched recently the Net Zero Insurance Alliance, which is an alliance of eight insurers under the lead of AXA, to make sure that we get the largest insurer, commercial insurers together to make sure that these risks are not underwritten anymore and that we are really helping focusing our uh, insurance on the companies that are in transition. So has this been effective? Have you seen those companies that will not get insurance from the big companies uh, actually struggle or, or actually shift their businesses in response? So on the, on the uh, question around uh, avoiding call, we've clearly seen it. And I've personally been involved uh, in quite a few customer conversations. As you can imagine, this is not easy. But if we don't go this way, uh, we will not make that transition happening. So on the call side, uh, it has already happened. The transition side uh, is currently in the making, and we are now uh, putting the coalition together to also act on this level. Thomas, from the coal side, just quickly, have you made the decision that you don't think those companies should be insured? Or have you made the decision that you can't put a price on the insurance? No, we believe these companies uh, should not be insured because uh, somebody who does not uh, contribute uh, to the transition of our uh, climate uh, is not somebody that we would like to invest in because we obviously see uh, the uh, negative effects on this on the other side. We are also a large health insurer. And so when you look at uh, uh, climate-related health issues, they have risen a lot. So for us, it makes absolute sense to be true to ourselves. How can we avoid these risks on the insurance side? to also make sure that we have a better experience for our patients. Fascinating position to put yourself in, though, Thomas, to decide which companies should or should not fail, which companies deserve insurance and which companies don't. Does it start and end with climate change or does this go somewhere else? Look, I mean, you also have other areas. If you think about, uh, again, health-related issues, uh, you have got the question around tobacco. And so, for example, in areas where we clearly see that there is a direct link between an industrial activity and negative consequences for health. So, for example, on tobacco, as of the first cigarette, you have a negative effect. We've also taken the decision in 2016 to exit this and to redeploy uh, our investment means. Um, this needs to continue, but it needs to continue in a way that we are accompanying uh, uh, our customers, that we are accompanying the companies we invest in to make sure that um, we help this transition and we don't penalize. Interesting. Some people might think that's controversial. That's a conversation for another day. Thomas, just quickly, Sunday, Man City, Liverpool. Can we get a prediction, sir? It is clearly that Liverpool will be winning and uh, because they are so well positioned. It would not underwrite the insurance of Man City, Tom, I think is the... The message you're trying to After send. After the loss he just took on Tottenham. It would be great, you TK. Know. As an insurer, if you could make that decision as well, which team succeeds and fails. Thomas Bubba there. Thank you, sir. The Access CEO. Right now, we're going to shift to the equity market with someone who does observe the yield space as he gauges his bullish view on equities. Benjamin Laidler is with eToro Global Markets, their strategist, and he joins us this morning to reaffirm own equities. Ben Laidler, you talk about the priors of yield. You talk about the other moments where we've seen yield surge, and you do say this time is different. I, I think the speed has been different. Markets, I think, are reacting to the speed of the bond yield move, you know, not necessarily sort of level 20 basis points in a week. If you extrapolate that, this is basically the biggest move uh, that we've almost ever had, even more than we had in, in first quarter, which was, you know, close to a record itself. 
Um, yeah, having said that, you know, I, I think we've sort of seen this movie before, right? First quarter, we had the, you know, nearly 100 basis point move in yields over the quarter. Uh, we saw a lot of movement, you know, to your point, under the surface. There was a lot of sort of sector rotation. But, um, you know, the overall market came up 6%. And um, that wasn't dissimilar to what we saw in the saber tantrum back in 2013, which was the best year of the decade right. uh, for, for equities. So, um, you know, I think the market's sending us some messages here. I think it means a lot more for sectors than it does for the market. Uh, and I think this sort of pain is, is, is going to be temporary as um, sort of markets, um, as investors sort of reprice this a little bit. But I think that sort of bull case of, you know, Fed forbearance and a strong earnings recovery remains in place. Have we had enough of a drawdown, a pullback, where it shifts the use of cash game for corporations? Um, I mean, we've had, I mean, the story for this year has really just been the lack of volatility. Right. I mean, we've had this huge rally. We've had one sort of five percent pullback this year rather than the three we've normally had. So, you know, the VIX remains sort of very low. I mean, you know, back in the first quarter, the VIX peaked at 37. So, um, you know, you can make the case for why we might get more volatility, um, especially with everything that's coming out of uh, D.C. And, and everything that's coming out of, uh, of China. So, you know, I, I think the outlook is one for probably more, you know, a bit more volatility in the short term. But I, I think you're being set up for you know, for a Santa rally into the end of the year as we sort of clear the sort of D.C. and China noise as these sort of growth fears subside. I mean, virus cases in the U.S. down 30 percent in two weeks. I mean, I think that sets yep. us up for, um, you know, growth recovery into third quarter. We've third quarter earnings coming up in two weeks, which I think is going to be, you know, expectations look very low. So I think we've been set up for, you know, another earnings beat. And um, I think the policy support remains Marine's very strong. Whether yields are at 1.5% on the 10-year or 2, they're, they're a fraction of where they were coming out of prior recessions. And I think that gives you a lot of support to valuation. Ben, you've touched on something important. I think a lot of people are waking up this morning looking at some of those popular holdings, the likes of Microsoft, Apple, Amazon. They're down hard since the start of September. They're wondering what to do in the face of rising yields. Ben, I know you can't do single names, but for those big stories, that sector, what do you suggest they should do? So first quarter, which is you know our nearest parallel, I think here, you know Nasdaq had a 10% pullback, and then it uh, then it fairly quickly recovered, uh, and the difference now versus then is you know I think the yield move then was was much more significant, and, and it was sort of first time out. I think uh, you know this time round, um, and I think you know what we saw then was yes, you know higher bond yields, you know hit stocks with higher valuations, and, and these sort of long duration cash flows, which is tech, but then very quickly I think we just get reminded. Um, and I think we'll see this in third quarter of just, you know, how strong the earnings power of these companies are and the fortress balance sheets that they have. Um, so I wouldn't expect tech to necessarily lead from here in a rising yield environment. I think that's going to be commodities, financials and value. But um, I, I certainly see them going up. Lisa, this is a big chunk of market cap. Microsoft down 7% from the middle of September. Apple down 9% plus, 9% plus since the start of September, the first week of September. They are big moves. And the interesting thing is that they're big moves despite what Ben is talking about here, the idea that revenues are tremendous. Ben, at what point can big tech, tech stop moving in lockstep with bond yields? I don't think this is all about bond yields. I think that's an important ingredient. If it was all about bond yields, then, you know, if you look at the macro level, places like Japan and Europe, where bond yields are, you know, dramatically lower, would have done a lot better and be trading a lot more expensive than, than uh, you know, they are right now. Um, uh, you know, the, what the value sectors and, and this recovery and growth potentially sets us up for is, you know, those sectors which are most exposed to that growth and those sectors which are least exposed to higher bond yields, i.e. have the lowest valuations, will do, you know, will do better. 
um, and, and that is you know, commodities and financials. And, and tech, which doesn't have those two things, which has less sensitivity to this growth rebound, which I think we should be talking more about now that virus cases are, are coming down, um, and um, you know, more sensitivity to sort of higher bond yields will, will naturally lag. Um, but I don't think uh, you can say that they're going to do particularly badly. I mean, valuations have actually come down quite a lot for big tech. And the surprise for this year is that those very strong growth rates, which you saw last year, haven't maybe come down as quickly as, um, as many thought they would do. Ben, the story of this week is the reflation trade has changed. It is a new reflation trade. If you take a look at which sectors are doing the best, you're looking at energy, you're looking at financials with the prospect of perhaps maybe uh, a steeper yield curve. It's not industrials. It's not materials. It's not consumer discretionaries that have to absorb some of these higher gas prices and uh, supply chain constraint issues. Does this mean something to you in terms of what the reflation trade will look like over the next six months? Yeah, I, I, I think it's going to be much more specific. I mean, there are, there are, I mean, I think we're more sort of attuned to some of these supply chain issues than we were before. We obviously have a bunch of concerns on sort of Chinese growth um, out there, which obviously feeds through sectors like materials, which maybe we didn't have, uh, uh, we didn't have last time. Um, I, I would also just say um, I, I think we're maybe right at the beginning of re-engaging in this sort of reflation trade. I mean, inflation expectations have really barely budged, market inflation expectations. I mean, five-year, five-year is still, you know, 223, 10-year, 238. I mean, they really haven't moved, you know, very much. Um, you know, this perceived Fed, you know, hawkishness, I mean, <clears throat> they basically moved the dots in line with where the market already yeah. was, you know, l l last week. Um, so I, I, think, um, I think we're really at the beginning of that rather than having had a big move already. John, let's review the statistics of the greatest equity call coming out of the urgency of 2018, late 2018. Laidler up 31%, SPX up 18% the next year, up 15%, John, so far this year. That's a lonely group. I remember it, Tom. I remember it well. Ben yeah. Laidler, can we have a repeat of 2013 when everybody starts freaking out about the removal of accommodation and this equity market flies? I remember that year. Most people do. What they forget sometimes, because the Treasury move is so burnt in the memory, what they forget sometimes is that the equity market was up almost 30% on the S&P 500. Ben, how different are things this time around? I, I think we've already had a lot of this, right? I mean, again, we got stress tested in the first quarter. We had this huge move in Treasury yields, and equities are up 6%. Uh, you know, equities up, you know, getting on for, well, until a few days ago, we were up nearly 20% for the year already. This was, you know, this was a big, big move for, for equities. As I say, I mean, we've got some volatility to get through, whether it's coming out of the bond market, coming out of DC, coming out of China over the next sort of month or so. But, but again, I think we'll be set up for, you know, this sort of Santa rally into year end as those concerns sort of fall away. Um, we refocus on the growth pace, which I think is sort of the stealth catch up, which is you know about to reaccelerate all this weak economic data you've been we've been seeing over the last you know, few weeks is all backward looking. Right? It was all when U.S. virus cases, global virus cases were 30 percent higher than the, than they are right now. Yeah. And um, again, I think policies, the policy support remains in place. Yields are a fraction of where they were coming out of previous recessions, and that just means that you know, valuations are going to stay high. Ben Laidler, still constructive, of eToro, global market strategist. Can we see a transatlantic linkage here? Any whisper of that is what I would listen for. Joining us now on this, Alsa Linios, RBC <clears throat> Global Head of FX Strategy. Alsa, we've got to talk a lot about what's happening with this dollar, a real breakout in the past 24 hours. Let me start with this one, though. Is Chair Powell a dangerous man from your perspective? 
I think you summed it up well when you said uh, Senator Warren was looking for people like you to, to bite the bait, and you did. I look, Elsa, at the dollar strength. You are truly expert at summing it all together, particularly with a continental Europe perspective. What is the character of this dollar strength? That's a really interesting question, Tom, because I think what was so unusual about yesterday was the bond and equity joint sell-off. So, you know, we're used to being in an environment where either bonds are rallying and equities are selling off or vice versa. But when bonds and equities are selling off together, historically, that actually means a very positive environment for the U.S. dollar, even against what you typically think of as a safe haven like the Swiss franc. Well, let's get back to Lignos 101. Is this going to be about relative interest rates or is it going to be about flows of capital? You know, both clearly matter. When, when we think about capital flows, we've done a lot of work in the past looking at how much money European investors have piled into U.S. equities. And I was actually just updating those charts last night, and you can see that's increased over the past year. So if we do go into an environment where U.S. equities were to underperform in relative terms, that would potentially create some downside risk for the dollar. If this is a global risk-off environment, though, or if it's a global equity bond sell-off, that's a far better environment for the U.S. dollar. So the capital flows, like you say, are really key. What's the pain trade right now, Elsa? The dollar getting a lot stronger or the dollar uh, materially weakening? Honestly, I think, you know, people are relatively lightly positioned in FX. Probably the biggest pain trade would be a massive increase in volatility. Nobody is looking for that now. You know, we've seen people try to position for that before and it's failed every time. Uh, and so we're in this environment where we just don't really expect anything to happen. What about the euro weakness that we've seen, the euro weakening to some of the weaker uh, levels that we've seen in about a year? Is this the story or is it more a dollar story? It's definitely more of a dollar story. I'm, I'm really excited to see it happen because that's been our call all year and it was a pretty lonely place to be in January. Um, but it's certainly a, a broader US dollar move. It's nothing specific to the euro. In fact, if you look at the euro against pound yesterday, it was actually a relative outperformer. Let's get to that sterling story. Elsa, if we can bring up sterling intraday, we came very, really, really, really close to break in 135. We've had a hawkish tilt from the Bank of England. It's failed to anchor sterling. You've got a short on here, Elsa. What's going on? Yeah, like you said, we've got a short sterling CAD recommendation at the moment. Um, we put it on at the start of the week. It's really looking at the upcoming event risk in the week ahead. Uh, I think what's happening at the moment, we had a lot of questions on sterling yesterday from clients. You know, people were wondering, is this the Bank of England making a policy mistake? Are we beginning to price credit risk for the UK? You know, it's very unusual to see yields going higher and the currency going lower. That's typically more what we see in emerging markets. I wouldn't try and read too much into the price action of a single day. Um, but I do think that the Bank of England is very optimistically priced, in my view. And we should think of it more as a best case scenario in terms of how many hikes we could get rather than a central scenario. Now, so that's really important. You push back against this idea that we'll have this rate path kick in at the Bank of England anytime soon. Why is that, Elsa? Well, it's not so much the, that we we'll, won't get hikes at all. It's more that I think people are factoring in too many hikes. And the Bank of England have been fairly clear with us in saying, you know, we'll hike a couple of times and then we'll pause. And alongside of that, you have all sorts of supply chain disruptions at the moment here in the UK, which are creating some inflationary pressures, but not the type that a central bank would typically respond to. Governor Bailey was very clear on that on Monday. And I don't think people have necessarily listened to that message and factored it into the way they're trading sterling. Also, really, really important comments there at the end. Also, Linios, RBC Global Head of FX Strategy.
This is a joy and exceptionally well-timed. Ambassador Hormatz joins us now. Robert Hormatz with Tideman Advisors, their managing director. But far more, I needed to finish a book strong a million years ago, and I finished with Robert Hormatz talking about expecting the unexpected on Asia. And we are thrilled Ambassador Hormatz could join us this morning on the new unexpected of China. Robert Hormatz, with President Xi, what should we expect? Well, I think we can expect a strongly nationalistic China. Uh, he wants to have China come back from two centuries where he considered that the West had taken advantage of China. China was fragmented internally. Now he's trying to pull it together under very strong party leadership and exercise enormous international influence. And he sees that the U.S is tentative in some areas and has uh, raised a lot of doubts among allies, although it's trying to put those doubts to aside at the moment and, and, and strengthen itself. But he sees as a chance for China to strengthen its position right. in East Asia and other parts of the world, and he is going to take advantage of it. And the party's having its anniversary coming up, um, the founding of the Republic of China, right. the People's Republic of China in um in uh, about 20 years, and he wants right. China to be the world leader. With a new leader in Japan today, Ambassador Hormatz, the Okinawas, the islands of Jima and the rest that we remember from World War II, they stretch down some 134 miles from Taiwan. Japan has a vested southern interest in Taiwan. How should the U.S. adapt to the calculus of Beijing, Taipei, and Tokyo? Well, certainly uh, China is interested in increasing its influence throughout the entire uh, Western Pacific, and uh, the small islands uh, are the starting point. I don't think taking on Taiwan is, uh, while a goal of, of, of China's, is probably not something the Chinese are going to do anytime soon. I think it would be a, a very disruptive factor in, in the region, but it certainly is going to uh, exert its influence all around Asia. And certainly it's increasing its naval presence, not only in East Asia, but in Southeast Asia and in the Indian Ocean and, and other parts of the world. So I, I think China will be restrained on Taiwan, but certainly will be exercising its naval influence throughout the entire region. Bob, it seems like there's been a material shift or at least a tightening in the screws over in China by Xi Jinping and the entire party. And it seems like there's been a shift in the regulations in terms of how hard they're willing to crack down on certain sectors. And yet when we speak with corporate executives, they are so delicate about this. They say, we're not going to change our strategy. We still see a lot of opportunity. As somebody who's operated on all sides of this debate, how do you think that corporate executives from the United States are viewing what's going on in China with relation to their presence there? Well, it's very interesting. I've spent a lot of time over the years with President Xi when he was uh, head of Zhejiang province and then when he was vice president. And he, he does want foreign investment in China and has been advocating that for a substantial period of time. On the other hand, he has a couple of goals, one of which is to have much stronger party control over the Chinese economy. Uh, and he's exerting it now primarily with big Chinese companies. Uh, 
where in virtually every company there is a Communist Party committee at very high levels in the company, and it is uh, very influential in uh, the decisions that the companies make. The second thing he wants is much tighter regulation because he sees, he calls something, he calls it the, the three red lines. He sees a lot of leveraging going on, particularly in the real estate area. And we'll probably talk about that in a moment. And he wants a much tougher regulatory environment yeah. for borrowing and cricketing real estate. And third, he wants a greater degree of equity in the system. The, the notion that some companies and some people do very well and others don't is is important to the to the Communist Party's uh, control over the over the economy. Yeah. And demonstrating that it's dealing with middle and lower income people and not just with uh, higher end people. Ambassador Hormat, I, I, I really have to, though, go back to what you said originally, that Xi Jinping still very much wants foreign investment. And yet the message that's being sent to the bondholders of Evergrande, the dollar bondholders, is very different. How do you dovetail the actions that they're taking with international investors with this case, with that drive for more international investment? Well, in, in this particular case, most of the bonds and uh, are and most of the exposure is Chinese. Ninety percent plus um, is, uh, of the money is owed to either Chinese bondholders uh, in our in renminbi um, or to suppliers in China, and therefore the the impact on the rest of the world is is not directly going to be that great. Um, and I think that a lot of warnings have already gone out that this is going, something is going to happen. I think they want to have an orderly restructuring. The bigger problem really is not so much the foreigners here, uh, although it's gotten a lot of press, but it is the localities. This company has uh, projects in uh, 200 uh, venues in China, in, in every province. And in many cases, a lot of people have bought uh, apartments or homes on the basis that they'll be built next year or the year after that, but they put their money down. If this company goes under, then a lot of those people will find themselves out of a lot of money. So I think they're worried more about the social instability in China than, than they are about foreigners. I don't think foreigners... Uh, other than perhaps psychologically, are going to take a very big hit here. But I think he's also going to make the point that the longer run here will be a much better regulated uh, Chinese financial market, particularly in real estate. Real estate's about 28% of the Chinese economy. If the real estate market tanks, it'll slow down the overall economy and hurt foreign uh, investors in China and, of course, Chinese companies. So I think he's feeling that if he can regulate the economy in a, in a responsible way, in a curious sense, the prospect of a bubble will uh, diminish and the, the stability of the Chinese economy over the medium term will, will increase. So I think that's the message that he's, he's providing. Yeah. But also, don't forget, a lot of companies are still doing well in China. A lot of American companies still see this as the world's fastest growing market, which it is, and they don't want to do anything to upset the apple cart. So long as the point. authorities let them do well, Bob, and I guess that's the issue going forward from here, sir. Valuable insight, as always. Bob Hormat's there. Robert Hormat's.
Without question, David Rubenstein's most important interview for the nation with Stephen Breyer. And we're thrilled that Mr. Rubenstein could join us right now, 9 p.m. tonight. Uh, I'll see that on Bloomberg Television. What a wonderful moment, David Rubenstein. What was the surprise of your conversation at the 92nd Y? Well, he doesn't seem to be that upset when people ask him anymore about uh, when he's going to retire. I mean, he's used to the question by now. I, I would get tired of it because he gets asked it all the time. But he's basically, uh, you know, used to saying, I'll make a decision when I'm ready to make the decision. And uh, he didn't really in in indicate to me when he's going to do it. Uh, I have my own views <clears throat> on when he's likely to do it. But mm -hmm. I, I, he didn't say specifically when he's going to retire. But I would suspect it's probably closer to uh, this term than the next term may be my guess. David Rubenstein, you've been a student of the court. How liberal is Breyer? Well, he's clearly in the liberal wing, and I would think people would say he's now the dean of the liberal wing. He's been on the court for 28 years, um, and I would say probably he and uh, uh, Justice Sotomayor and Justice Kagan are the liberal wing, such as it is left uh, at this point. So I would say he's he wouldn't consider himself liberal but I would say others would probably say that's the appropriate the description of him. But a very impressive person. I've known him since I worked on Capitol Hill about 40 years ago. And uh, he's a very, very smart person. And he didn't necessarily think he was going to be a justice in the Supreme Court. In fact, when he went for the first interview, he didn't do that well because he had a bike accident, was not doing very well in the interview with Bill Clinton. He later uh, got the position after Ruth Bader Ginsburg got the first appointment by Bill Clinton. David, the fact that he gets asked all the time when he's going to retire, uh, given that he's 83, highlights the deeply politicized nature of all of these appointments and some of the uh, the, the machinations behind uh, what happened with Ruth Bader Ginsburg. How much do you think this reflects, in his view, a more politicized court than ever before? Right. Well, he wrote a book, and that was the subject of the interview. He's been out uh, giving interviews recently because he has a book out that talks about the fact that justices are not political. They don't talk about politics. And it's just not something they ever consider. However, outside the court, we've obviously politicized the uh, confirmation process. And most people see certain decisions like Bush v. Gore as political. Uh, he doesn't agree with that. But there's no doubt that today I think the court is seen as more political than, than it was before. And that's something he's not happy about but it's not much he can really do about it. And, and Lisa, what's so important here, growing up with Jerry Brown and Lawrence Tribe and the rest that Breyer did, is the heritage of the country. You're expert on this, uh, working you know, at Chicago and studying in the milieu of Richard Posner and all. Well, the idea here of constitutional law being increasingly politicized, you have this core of six justices right now, deeply in the conservative wing, and definitely uh, voting as, as a pack when it comes to certain things like abortion rights, at least so far, uh, and, and, and all of these more politicized issues. There's a deeper issue, though, David. And as an investor, you have deep respect for trying to game out how Washington acts and your experience on Capitol Hill. Has there ever been more of a sense of unpassable gridlock at a time when even the parties are divided to such a degree? I've not seen anything like this in the last 100 years, anything I've read about or in the last 100 years. Obviously, during the Civil War, it was like this. But now we don't have any sense that cooperating is a good thing. And bipartisanship is just out the window. Uh, you can't even get a bipartisan vote to pass the debt limit, for example, anymore. So I'm, I'm saddened by it. I think most people are as well. I think the Supreme Court is trying to avoid being seen as political. But I think mo many people still see it as somewhat political, uh, unfortunately. David, is the grace of the court gone? When you look at the clerk system, 
the cadence of top students becoming clerks with all that competition and then going on to different appointments and judges, is the grace still there in our judiciary? Well, it's still a great honor. Each justice gets four uh, clerks, and it's a big honor to be one of those clerks. I should point out that my law school this year has nine clerks, which is the most they've ever had. And so we're very pleased with that. But these are the, the leading students in, in the country, and many of them do become justice of the Supreme Court themselves. Justice Breyer was a clerk for Justice Goldberg. So many of these people do come back, and Justice Roberts was a clerk as well in the court. So you see many of these justices coming back, uh, having been clerks in the court before. These are really, really smart people. Um, and I do want to point out that the court, while it's seen as some political by, by, by many people, um, is still probably the most respected of the three branches of government. And I think it, increasingly people say, well, what the court says is that's the law of the land. In other countries, uh, it's not necessarily the case that when, the, when their top court says something, people obey it. But here, when people say uh, the Supreme Court says something, even if it's five to four, we do recognize that's the law of the land. And the rule of law is very important to this country. So I do think the court, while it's unfortunately seen as political for reasons beyond its control, is still more respected, honestly, than the executive branch or the legislative branch. To that point, David, aside from the big polemics of the day, how much consensus is there on the court? Basically, how many cases right. do we see that are eight to one or even unanimous uh, that, that really uh, go to the heart of, of how we rule here in the United States? Um, a few years ago, the court used to do 120 cases or so a year. Now they're down to about 75 cases a year for lots of technical reasons. I would say probably half of them are unanimous. So they don't get any attention, but they're relatively uh, unexciting bankruptcy cases or other kinds of things. Uh, the, the cases that are five to four, probably about, I would say about 20% of the cases are five to four or <laughs> the equivalent of five to four. So that, that, that's when you get most of the attention. And then obviously there's own things like abortion or redistricting or, mm -hmm. or voting rights or things like that. But in most uh, cases, they're generally fairly straightforward in terms of the law. And most cases, honestly, are, are, if not unanimous, close to being unanimous. David, congratulations on this interview. David Rubenstein, host of Peer-to-Peer -Peer Conversations you. with Justice Breyer. Look for that tonight, 9 p.m., of course, with the Carlisle Group uh, as well. This is the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. Thanks for listening. Join us live weekdays from 7 to 10 a.m. Eastern on Bloomberg Radio and on Bloomberg Television each day from 6 to 9 a.m. for insight from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations. And subscribe to the Surveillance Podcast on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on The Terminal. I'm Tom Keen, and this is Bloomberg.